So when I was younger and just starting to get into anything that was weird and strange, I made the mistake, newbie beginner mistake, of going to a cemetery without telling anybody. I'm going to go to the cemetery, young man, investigate for ghosts by myself. Very old cemetery. Uh, no one had been buried there in decades. So I'm there. It was 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning. And I'm walking very carefully, just with my flashlight and my tape recorder. And as I walk forward, I hear, under my feet, I hear wood cracking. And I realize that I'm probably about to fall through the top of an old coffin, where the ground has been washed away. And all of a sudden I pop into the moment, and I realize this is going to happen and I hear just ever so slightly a voice say, careful. And I immediately step backwards. Now in hindsight, when I heard the wood cracking under my feet, it was because I had just stepped off the top of a coffin lid and it was coming back into place. And if I was careful and would have continued to walk forward, I would have been fine but I stepped backward and I put all of my weight on my back foot and immediately plunged through the top of a coffin and ended up laying in a coffin, checking myself to make sure that I hadn't been stabbed by wood and iron nails, whatever was in the coffin. Then the realization comes to mind that this is a coffin and there was probably a body in here and now you're laying on top of it. And luckily, for me, the coffin was so old that the only thing in there were some scraps of clothing, uh, tiny little bits of bone and dust. But what's interesting is the problem was in going backward. If I would have gone forward into the weirdness, I would have been fine. But I took a step back. And I was going back where I came from. And that's when you end up laying on top of a dead body. Make, really wondering if you've made the right choices in your life. When you're laying in a coffin at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, in the dark, you really have to wonder, what am I fucking doing with my life? I'm Jim Perry, and you are listening to Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. On this edition, John E.L. Tinney, paranormal researcher, lecturer, and collector, a life on the fringe of here and there, now and then. As your life flashes before your eyes, what do you see? What can we learn about life from death? Detroit, there's a buzz, an experience in which envelops you. It's the history and the feeling of rich sound, like residue, sticks to you. 
Around every corner, another familiar face. People, moved by this energy to rebuild a community in ruin. To connect with its more prosperous ghosts. And create a city, reborn. Here at the Royal Oak Library, that noise is but a hum. Paranormal investigator John E. L. Tinney was born here. A punk rock kid comes supernormal Seamus. John reminds us of a detective in some hard-boiled novel. He's a throwback in the best way, dressed in suit jacket and vest. We meet up in Royal Oak. This is where I spent uh, most of the time when I skipped school. A place I'd come just to try and hide from what people were trying to teach me and read about what I wanted to read about. This is actually this Michigan Haunts and Hauntings book. This is by Marion Kuklo, who was one of my mentors. So she was one of the first people to kind of introduce me to haunted graveyards and stuff. She was a terrible researcher, but she was a super cool witch. Uh, she used to write like newspaper columns and stuff. And she would paint her face green and do Halloween events for kids. And, uh, I mean, she's passed away now. It's weird to think that she's a ghost. In my past, at least. You know, we, when we die, we know that we'll be gone, but we want to leave something behind. And even if that's just a spark in someone else's head, like some, for some people that's good enough. And I think especially with an older generation, it wasn't so much leaving behind a monument or a podcast or a website. It was about leaving behind ideas. I mean, that's what a library is, right? It's left behind ideas. All of the smartest people in the world, all of their thoughts, are here in this building. And you can go and read them anytime you want, and they come alive again. Next, on Euphemet, we confront what really could be on the other side of life. At John's house, tomes, ephemera, and all matter of occult objects capture my attention. A notable collection of weird, comprehensive, and well-curated. John has read every book in his collection, and rarely loans any out. I get the feeling that I'm witness to John's brain trust, and I'm honored to be a guest to it. But I quickly find this privilege is not granted for free. I have yet to be initiated. You know, people spend their lives being shocked at ideas. And so like when people first come over my house, uh, if I'm, I might not be able to shock them with ideas. So I can literally shock them with electricity. So either way, once you've come to my house, you've been shocked. So every time someone comes over for the first time, I have to shock them. What am I getting myself into here? Uh, so this machine, was made in the turn of the century and it was supposed to, you know, it's like a quackery machine. So it was made to heal all of your ills. That's why all these different things work. Like there's a comb, uh, there's one for your neck, there's one that should be inserted into any holes that you may have. Uh, your choice though, as to which one of these you want to be shocked with. Uh. And then you're gonna have to put that down because I'm afraid it'll blow out <laughs> with anything you're holding. Okay. All right, um, yeah, let's do that one. Yeah? Here, what are you holding right there? So it's just a long tube 
filled with, and they're all filled with different gases. I don't know about this. <laughs> all right, put that down. <laughs> that one has a little bit more of a little bit of a kick. Whoa, okay. Yeah. Yep. A little <laughs> bit of a kick. Oh, shit. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep, that one's a little fire. Got it? Yep. Okay, good. <laughs> Welcome to my house, you've been shocked. I'm in. <laughs> You're in. I don't talk about it that much. But uh, when I was 18, just genetically it happens sometimes that people have heart attacks. And I died. They got me back after about a minute, and that's when I was in the ambulance, and then they lost me again for a couple minutes, and they got me back at the hospital. So a combined three, three and a half minutes. And the first time, there's, I don't really have a memory of that. I remember them restarting my heart in the ambulance with the paddles. Like, that's a shock. You thought you got a shock when you came over. Like, starting your heart with electricity is a shock. That I remember. Um, the second time, though, is where what I call a memory happened. The experience of death. Which was becoming aware that I was only an idea. That I had only ever been an idea that I now existed in the form of an idea. No body, uh, no physicality. And that me as an idea had only ever existed for infinity and was only going to exist for infinity. And that I existed within nothing. There was nothing but the idea which was me. And that realization, I wanted to scream and immediately realized that I had no mouth and no body and that I had always only been an idea inside of infinity forever. And there's madness there. There's, and then you realize, oh, if this is all I've ever been, I've been mad forever. Like the madness has always been here because the only thing that can be is what I am. And then there's sadness and you're like, oh, I'm only sadness. I've only ever been sadness. I am sadness. And then there's horror. And then there's exaltation. And then you realize, oh, I'm I'm all of those things. All of those things are the same thing because I am that thing and I am all there is. It's, it's super weird to try and verbalize it. I've never been able to get a good grasp on it because, again, I can't say nothing in infinity. Like, obviously, it seems now that I'm talking about it, which means that this is occurring after infinity. And one of the reasons I don't talk about it too much is because of the anxiety it builds up with me thinking that, oh no, it's still going on. 
I have just separated and created a place where I don't have to remember that I am the only thing that exists inside of infinity forever. So I've created this fake little reality with you listening to me and this house with all of these things that seem important to me. Uh, this is how that idea has compartmentalized the madness to keep away from it. And that at some point, at any point, this will all just stop and I'll be back into that infinitude uh, by myself, alone, forever, being the only thing that ever is. But somehow in that state of being the only thing, there was a uh, moment where there was I became another thought. Uh, not an emotion, not a feeling. It was different. I became a separate thought, which was... Uh, do you want everything? That was the thought. Do you want everything? And it was a singular thought. And it seemed to not be me, which is crazy, because I'm the only thing that ever was and ever will be. And... I wanted to be that other thing. I want, do you want everything? That is the thought I wanted to become. And when I became that thought is when I opened my eyes in the hospital and was alive again. So this is everything. I don't know how that sounds. But that's, and again, it's not right. It doesn't sound right when I say it out loud. It's such an internalized experience. And it's not meant to be put into words. And I try. But this is everything. The only wisdom that I can impart about my death experience, about dying, is you hear that people say that when you die, your life flashes before your eyes. And so, in the turn of that phrase, it seems like people are saying, at the moment of your death or right before, you see a replay of your life and your life flashes before your eyes. The only thing I can tell you personally is that that's not what that means. What it means is the moment that you're going to die, you will have seen your life and realize that it was just a flash and it was too short and you just saw it. And it might have taken 70 years, but it was only 70 years. And now it's gone. In a flash. Once I left the hospital and went back into my parents' house, so it was on the 23rd of January that year, I walked into my childhood bedroom. I didn't leave that bedroom until the end of August. So I spent eight months uh, not believing I was back in reality, which was very odd. 
my mother in whatever insight that she has of human nature naturally or just being a mom uh, at the end of August she left a utility bill on my bed in, in my bedroom with a post-it note on it and in front of my parents house there was a mailbox and there was a post-it note that just said could you mail this and I was like how am I supposed to mail that like that mailbox is 150 feet away from the house I walked out of the bedroom through the living room first time in the living room in like eight months and then I just stood at the front door and looked outside for hours holding the utility bill and opened up the screen door looked around the neighborhood and then ran as fast as I possibly could to the mailbox threw it in the mailbox and then boom right back into my room and that's how I started to leave the house and there was a kind of revelatory moment when I discovered everything again and you realize how amazing it is to see puddles of oil to walk past a house and hear people screaming at each other to hear car horns honking and people flipping off each other and yelling at each other and how beautiful that is. Oh, there's going to be a time in my life when I don't get to see oil puddles anymore. There's going to be a time in my life when, ow, like I just tripped over something and hurt my foot. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, wow, that pain is really kind of beautiful. Like how amazing that I can feel pain. I had always wondered why no one came to my house. None of my friends had come to my house. Eight months. Uh, it's because my parents really cared more about me than they cared about my friends, so they never really mentioned it to any of my friends. And so all my friends knew is that I had died. So eight months after I had died and I had started to leave the house, and I'd started to walk around, I decided to go back down to Royal Oak, which is where all my friends hung out on the corner. And I was really excited to see them. And they screamed. And they ran in every possible direction because I had been dead to them for eight months. I was gone. They had mourned me. I was forever gone. And now here I was running full speed at them down the street. <laughs> and I was I was a zombie. I was a ghost. Yeah. My friend Jim was the first person to come over my house after that. And what's really odd is he came over I remember hearing his voice. I was back in the bedroom. And I remembered hearing him talking to my mother in the living room. And I got up. And his kind of shocked face when he saw me. And I like, I started crying. Like, here's one of my friends, finally. And I remember like, running up to him and giving him a big hug. And just sobbing and like, oh, I'm fine and whatever. And 
what's so odd about that experience is I think that was the last time I ever talked to him. I think it was too intense for him. So when you were in that room and you were coming to grips with all this, did, did you did you do normal things in there? Did you listen to music? Did you think about girls? Did you... What the hell was that like for eight months? I watched a lot of television and would just stay up all night watching episodes of uh, The Fugitive, uh, Rawhide, just whatever was on it from midnight till six o'clock in the morning. Reading a lot. Uh, writing a lot. There was a period of time, too, which I think is interesting upon later reflection. There was a period of time when I was probably four or five months where I was just massively religious. Like I read the Bible all the time. Uh, I asked my dad to buy me a Bible, which I had never owned before, and just tore through it over and over, like highlighting passages and trying to figure out what any of it meant. It seemed like the Bible was like, it must mean something, right? Like millions and millions of people for hundreds and hundreds of years have used this. There must be a key in here somewhere. It's interesting, the concept of like being born again, because like I had a similar experience uh, where I was one way and died and then was not dead and was a different person. Can you, uh, can you take me back to 1989? Uh, maybe days before this goes down. Uh, who is, who is John at that point? Uh, pretty terrible person. Um, Even though I was a, I think I was a smart kid, I think I was one of those people who, because I was smart, thought I was smarter than everyone. And so I took advantage of people, like in the worst. I stole all the time. I was a terrible thief. Like anything. It didn't matter. Record stores, comic book shops, whatever. Just steal. Why not? Who cares? Doesn't matter. They'll get over it. Uh, it's all about me. And uh, even the people that I was in relationships with, like it was me. So it's, it's interesting upon reflection after those events that the kind of hellish nature of my death experience is what if it's only you forever? How, how good does that feel? Do you want to be just you forever? Or do you want other things? And I mean, I, I hopefully made the right choice. I mean, I still do like myself and I still think about, a lot of this shit is about me, but <laughs> I'm a much better person than I was. Sitting here with John, he's puffing on a pipe legs crossed in a vintage armchair, confirming my assumptions that he's a classic, perhaps a man of another time. But John is anything but one note. He's literally a survivor, 
and he's resolute in connecting with others through his lecture series and paranormal investigations. In other words, he didn't let death stop him from diving into the shadows. He's a weirdo, a moniker he embraces. When I talk about weirdness and the weird and weirdos, like I greet all of my friends with, hey weirdo. I say it to everyone. I start my lectures with it. The, the first time that I heard weirdo, I was being beat up. I was in high school and I was, you know, being punched in the stomach, being called a weirdo. And there was this moment where I realized, oh, weirdos aren't beating me up. A weirdo is a person who gets beat up. Boy, am I glad I'm a weirdo. I don't want to beat anyone up. And so I, I was happy to be a weirdo because I wasn't the type of person to beat up someone because they were different. And then as I got older, and I would hear it at work, I'd say something about ghosts or weirdo. You know, I'd hear it whispered as I walked past people in their cubicles. Guys, weirdo. And the etymology of weirdo, it comes from a word weird, W-Y-R-D. Uh, and that word was thrown at people back in the 15th and 16th century. Those were the people who didn't do what the kings and queens commanded. It was people who thought their own way. It was people who disobeyed the commands of the king. They were weird. It actually came to mean, and Shakespeare writes about the weird sisters, the witches. It meant the diviners of their own fate, the people who created their own destiny. And so when I call someone a weirdo, that's what I mean. I mean, they think for themselves. They don't do exactly what they're told. They're the diviners of their own fate, the masters of their own destiny. When I call someone a weirdo, it's like the greatest compliment I can give someone. And people do have it in them. Everyone has a weirdo in them somewhere. A safe, cool weirdo. It's finding it. Whether it's someone's obsession with Godzilla, wrestling, anime, cooking, quilting. There's a weirdo in everyone. Uh, I just wish that people could see that. That difference that we all have. The thing that makes me different from you. The thing that makes me different from everyone. That's the thing that we all have in common. Our difference is our commonality. And I know that that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their brains around. But when you look at someone and you see that they wear different clothes, that they have a different skin color, they're a different gender, different orientation from you in whatever way, that's why when I talk about everyone being me and me being everyone, that's what I mean. 
Look at me over there. How cool is that? So different. Even when I see people I don't like at the moment. <laughs> I'm like, isn't that great? Like, look at how horrible that person is. Uh, and in the strangest, most bizarre way, I like to think when I see someone that's not nice or someone that doesn't make me happy to be around I like to think to myself like oh wow that person is going to be me someday like that's a pretty amazing thing and then in that realization I realize I can't fight with them I can argue with them try and make them smarter while they try and make me smarter that's good the exchange of ideas with myself but yeah, that's what's awesome. You're talking to versions of yourself. That's weird. You're making your own destiny because you're just talking to yourself. Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemet. To learn more about John's work, visit weirdlectures.com. Are you on Facebook? Of course you are. Make sure to join our group, The Society of Euphemet, on Facebook. More people are joining our community every day to share their own experiences and talk about the show. Please join us. You can also follow us at Euphemet on social media and me at It's Jim Perry on Twitter. Also, to support the show, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. That helps us big time, so we appreciate that support. This has been Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. And until next time... Keep looking up.